Good morning. They say the early bird catches the worm, but I know that's not how I caught this worm. Crystal Clear here, and you're listening to more Morgulons, the world's most trusted source on dubious claims about Morgulons. And boy, are there plenty of dubious claims out there on the internet. Let's start with the list of symptoms. Remember when you had to put me in the rage cage? Oh, yeah. Very good. It was, and I went nuts. <laughs> you were absolutely, if there was not that rage cage for, for sort of protection to the outside world. I was like a gorilla. I know. On steroids. How many zookeepers would have been killed? Oh, my God, so many. I mean, I, as a trained professional, was scared. Is the Morgulons made me do it. <laughs> nothing those crazy things. People underestimate them. <laughs> Some people think they're imaginary. But I'm pretty sure this is literally all in my head. Like, all in my head. Not metaphorically. I mean, like, embedded in there, probably in my brain. As well as my face. But what about the OCD and the ADHD and the bipolar that uh, Morgulon supposedly causes? What about the brain fog? What about the chronic fatigue? Is tired a state of mind? Or are these symptoms that I've just listed of Morgulons? I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows, honestly. It seems like OCD could be a good contender. I know that this condition certainly has made me obsessive and compulsive about some things in the beginning, like cleaning. That was a big obsession for a brief period of time before I returned to my natural state of pig pen. But um, ADHD, I, you know, I don't know what that means. Um, to me personally, that's like a fake disease <laughs> made up by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but, you know, there is a lot of boring stuff that's hard to pay attention to in life. So I get that. But yeah, is it like a bona fide illness? I don't know, but I personally do not believe it is. Um, and you may say, well, uh, crystal clear, my son or daughter has ADHD and we gave them Adderall and now they can concentrate on their schoolwork just fine. Well, let me tell you a little something about the central nervous system stimulants like amphetamine slash Adderall because they are the exact same thing. Um, amphetamines make it difficult to task switch. So meaning that once you get started on something, it's hard to pick up and do something else because you're like obsessively interested in it. It's just, that's all that's happening when your kid is on Adderall, they're tweaking out. <laughs> just like they would be if they were taking street drugs. Okay, um, yeah, it's just a different dosage. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So today I want to do something a little bit different and share with you some essays that I wrote. Well, one essay I wrote when I was in my senior practicum as a nurse in nursing school. Um, this may or may not have anything to do with Morgulons, but it does give you a context um, and a lens through which to think about me as a nurse, not just a morgy, a weirdo, and a sex symbol. Uh, so here it goes. This is what I wrote during week one. This is in 2015, January 24th and 25th. I feel very positive about the first week of my leadership practicum in the emergency department. My first day was both hectic and rousing, as first days often are in any unfamiliar environment in which you hope to make a positive impression upon new acquaintances. I was pleased to meet my preceptor, who I'll call Valerie, who appears to be a very experienced BSRN with a broad knowledge base, seasoned assessment skills, and decisive clinical judgment. She has an uneven but professional bedside manner and treated me with graciousness and patience, which was a blessing since I spent much of my first 24 hours feeling overwhelmed and painfully inexperienced. Within an hour of my arrival on day one, I participated in my first cardiac code. Although intimidating, that was an invaluable learning experience and my first opportunity to provide CPR. I quickly realized that effective chest compressions require far more physical strength and endurance than one would anticipate if only judging from simulations performed in CPR classes. We were unable to resuscitate the patient despite taking every measure the standard of care stipulates. I was not sad or upset by witnessing a patient death for the first time, but I was humbled by and reminded of the profound privilege of working in a profession that brings one into intimate contact with every conceivable aspect of the human experience from birth to death. Before this practicum, the totality of my emergency department experience consisted of one exceptional day of emergency uh, rotation last semester, so I was eager to learn more about this specialty. The faster pace in this setting lends itself to a more dynamic, autonomous, and physically cognitively challenging style of nursing care, and additionally encompasses almost every possible patient population and pathology. At this point in my professional development, I feel that breadth of experience may be more valuable than depth of experience since I am still exploring my personal and professional potential as well as my limitations. So the emergency department is ideal for me since it is almost like a microcosm of the larger acute care setting. Even in my brief time at the emergency department, I've discovered quite a bit about where I am and where I want to be in terms of my professional preparedness for practice. Many of the insights that I gained from these first shifts were quite humbling, which I chose not to be discouraged by, but rather inspired to improve and grow. I must admit, though, I was dismayed to realize that my basic assessment skills, the foundation of the nursing process, are not consistent, organized, or integrated with my academic knowledge. I've always known my inclinations and acumen were cerebral rather than kinesthetic in nature, but I don't think I previously recognized how heavily I've relied on my intellectual understanding of biology and pathology to make probable clinical conjectures without fully utilizing my five senses to assess and collect the empirical evidence needed to make confirmed clinical judgments. The only negative impression I had during my first week was what was what I perceived as a dysfunctional relationship between the staff and difficult patients, or so-called, quote, frequent flyers, who can be needy, unappreciative, and or manipulative. 
in addition to consuming an unfair share of emergency department time and resources for frivolous, perhaps even fictional, somatic complaints. I was saddened by the dismissive and derisive attitudes held by the staff towards these troubled patients. I tried to offer my opinion in the form of questions. Since we can't treat chronic pain in the ED, are there other departments here that we might refer them to? If this is just drug-seeking behavior, should we educate the patient about recovery programs, etc.? The responses I received were essentially a slight variation of the same jaded refrain I've heard from nurses before. When you get out of nursing school, you'll see how it really works. Unfortunately, I feel that I do see exactly how this really works, and it is not working very well. It's clearly impacting staff morale negatively. It's an inappropriate allocation of emergency services. It's a failure to provide compassionate quality care for patients who are continuously seeking relief for some kind of pain. And it's potentially a preventable medical error, a case of negligence and or tragedy waiting to happen if cynical providers dismiss patients' complaints as just another proverbial boy who cried wolf because we all know how that story ends with lawyers or even law enforcement rummaging through the carry-on of your career looking for the crying boy's bones but i don't point out this problem i saw in the emergency department as some shaming finger-waving indictment of the personnel there or even to suggest that it's a failure of leadership at the institutional level i suppose i'm simply seeing firsthand the much larger failure of society to ensure adequate funding infrastructure and personnel to provide specialized care for the substantial population of patients who are suffering from debilitating from debilitating mental illness chronic addictions or all the emotional and spiritually troubled individuals who have no place to go for support support, attention, and caring. The ED is the only place that cannot turn them away. Okay, if you enjoyed that, continue listening. If you did not, I would probably turn this off now because I'm going to week two. All right, this is on January 28th through the 30th. I'm so grateful to God for this opportunity to work in service for others, and every shift that I've worked in the emergency department has been unique and incredibly valuable to me, both professionally and personally. At this point in my education and training, it is strange to simultaneously feel like I've learned so much and at the same time feel that I know so little. First thing Wednesday morning, I told my preceptor, I have two goals for the week. I want to work on IV skills and physical assessment. I explained to her that I've had trouble auscultating lung sounds and she tried to help guide me through pulmonary assessment, but I'm still not confident about my ability to detect adventitious lung sounds versus normal ones. And I can't help but be self-conscious about how awkward I must appear to my preceptor and others when they attempt to teach me anything that involves directional spatial orientation, hand-eye coordination, or manipulating any kind of object with moving parts, i.e. the vocational skills of applied nursing practice. Obviously, I recognize the importance of acquiring these skills and feel confident I will over time, but I often question whether others have as much trouble performing these tasks as I have this semester. I did start, or attempt to start, several IVs and do blood draws. One of the techs, a retired paramedic and a bit of a character, is generally regarded as the ED's resident expert to call in when there's a patient who's an especially, quote, hard stick, and the rest of the staff has failed. I privately think of him as the vein whisperer. So I was really touched when he went out of his way to help me get IV practice on Friday and guided me through the process of finding good veins, which I've been attempting to do solely through visualization without realizing the value of palpation. He showed me his needle insertion techniques and his trick for opening flushes with one quick squeeze 
for which I was especially grateful since I feel like I've been spending a third of my time fumbling around in those latex gloves trying to open stubborn packaging. He and my preceptor have different techniques for starting an IV, and as of yet, I'm not proficient in either, but I have faith that with time and practice, I will build my confidence and competence. I had a really rewarding experience with a patient on Friday. The ED was very busy that afternoon when an older woman, the patient, and her husband were admitted to one of our rooms for a possible blood transfusion. I was struck by how drawn her face was. She was so thin and wan and had a profound air of sadness about her. Her and her husband were very quiet and stoic. And all I knew about the chief complaint was anemia, though she was clearly a cancer patient by her appearance and the fact that she had a port. My preceptor demonstrated sterile dressing change and blood draw. This is something that I would have liked to have done myself, so hopefully I can give it a try next week when there's an opportunity. Anyway, Valerie and I were very busy, and it wasn't until two or three hours later that the patient's husband caught my attention and anxiously asked if I knew how much longer because he had to go back to the farm. I got concerned because I could see how distressed he was about leaving his wife there for the night. It was frustrating that day because there were organizational issues and I was so busy that it took a little too long for it to dawn on me that this family really needed more emotional support than they were receiving. But there was nothing I could do about the equipment and staffing shortages that kept them waiting all day long. I came in to check her vitals and saw that her husband had gone and she seemed distraught and asked me if I knew when she'd be admitted. I felt so helpless. She said something about crackers and thank the Lord there was something that finally, finally something I could help her with. I went and found her a bagged lunch and soft drink and I was pleasantly surprised by her good appetite. I asked her about her health recently and expressed my concern that this must be a very exhausting experience. It was like a trickle at first, but then she started pouring her heart out like she'd been waiting a while to do it. I felt so humbled by the trust she invested in me, and her spirit seemed more animated and less ghostly after she and I spoke. Talking is so therapeutic sometimes, but in this case, I think my willingness to be silent and listen with attention and concern was really helpful for her in the midst of that frustrating waiting and uncertainty, which was resolved that evening. I got the impression that she hadn't talked much about her cancer, and I think she needed to. She certainly seemed a little lighter in spirit as the tech rolled her down the hall and she waved goodbye and even smiled at me. I will never forget this sweet patient. Y'all, I'm about to cry. Update. Seven years later, still have never successfully started an IV. Yep. (laughs) That's how you go into management, people. Um, Should I keep going? Should I keep going? All right. Here we go. This was an especially, this is uh, February, uh, February 11th through the 15th. This was an especially interesting week of my practicum because I had the opportunity to work with and learn from another RN who acted as my substitute preceptor while Miss Valerie was away. It was very interesting to observe the differences in their approach to both teaching and nursing without any intention to disparage or otherwise discredit my regular preceptor, for I believe she is an extremely competent nurse and would trust her with my own mother's life health care. I must confess that I have gained a considerable measure of confidence and competence during the two shifts I worked with Shelly, much more than I have in the course of all of my other shifts combined. I was given far more opportunities to practice my nursing skills, and I am thrilled by how much I have improved, especially regarding IV insertion, blood draws, and parenteral medication administration in general. It has been interesting to observe different individuals' approaches to patient care, whether it be variations on technical procedures, how they introduce themselves to a new patient, or more fundamentally, whether they are primarily task-oriented or relationship-oriented. I think it would be interesting to read or generate 
research that compared a traditional senior practicum that relies on one preceptor student relationship versus a practicum that incorporated multiple preceptors across the course of the practicum. In some ways, I think this multi-modeling approach in the Bandurian sense could be more sophisticated and thorough preparation for transitioning into the work environment. It could possibly expose students to different methods for completing patient care tasks, allowing them to formulate the most effective methods that work for them. It could provide a broader base of knowledge and experience since a preceptor who has had many departmental transitions will provide different expertise than one who has remained in one specialty exclusively. And it would require that the student demonstrates an ability to work effectively with a variety of different personalities in a role that at, that at times collegial and at other times deferential. I think continuity has merits as well, but I'm grateful to have experienced working with different preceptors with different practices and points of view. As my fourth week of rotation approaches and the completion of this experience draws near, I would like to focus on my continuing efforts to improve my technical skills and also try to use what I've observed to anticipate physicians' orders as well as patients' needs and concerns. I mentioned anticipating patients' needs and concerns. Sometimes I encounter patients whose needs and concerns are obvious. They suspect they have another ear infection and would like an examination, an antibiotic prescription, and a doctor's note for their absence from work. Other times, it's not so straightforward. A patient I encountered this week came to the emergency room complaining of severe abdominal pain, which she attributed to a rape that occurred five days earlier in another state where it was reported to police. The patient also requested information and access to a domestic violence shelter. She was visibly distressed and restless. As I tried to obtain information about her current problem and then her history, it became difficult to ascertain what her chief complaint was as her original what had changed and the narrative in general was subject to change. By her own admission, she had suffered from psychiatric health issues for many years and I had trouble deciding how to prioritize my care aside from assuring assuring safety and following the standards of practice. Within 10 minutes, I had secured Kleenexes at the bedside of this crying patient, padded the bed rails, seizure precautions due to patient report of epilepsy, accessed a telephone so she could call her daughter, obtained a blood pressure reading and ECG to assess reports of hypertension and syncope, located supplies for a pelvic exam, tried to locate a social worker, etc., etc., etc. I'm still not sure I succeeded in doing what needed to be done for this patient or if I diverted valuable time for other patients by attending to a variety of unsubstantiated conditions and almost incessant requests, both direct and indirect, for attention. I don't believe I did anything that violated my responsibilities. In fact, failing to do any would have been a violation, I believe, nor did I feel that many of my actions were helpful in addressing her needs. Only listening and showing concern seemed to alleviate her pain and calm her. And I just wonder if there is a better way of handling these types of patient situations so that no physical complaint is dismissed and is properly assessed, but also having the confidence to heed one's intuition and focus the assessment and interventions on the psychosocial issues that appear to be the chief concerns of the patients themselves. Stay tuned for the final two essays on the next episode. And thanks for listening.